Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that gives you an exclusive view into the mysterious world of mega transfer deals across the world of football. We've got a lot to get through today with some big breaking news in a moment. Then we'll cover the news that Kylian Mbappe is set to snub Real Madrid and Manchester City in order to join Brazilian superstar Neymar at his new home at PSG. That's going to have consequences all over Europe and none more so than at Chelsea. So we're going to take a good look at the English champions and judge their state of health ahead of the new campaign. This podcast is available on iTunes and Audioboom, so please make sure you subscribe on either platform. And if you enjoy it, give us a good rating and tell your pals. I'm Henry McRae, and I'm joined by Transfer Window regular Duncan Castles and good friend of the podcast, Ian McGarry. So let's get down to business. And the big news we have is that Manchester United's appear to have turned their attention to Danny Rose in order to solve their problems at left-back. Duncan, what's the latest? Yeah, well, the news is that um, Jose Mourinho is now prioritising a left-back um, as a way of solving uh, some very obvious weaknesses in his squad going into his second Premier League campaign. Um, and Danny Rose is one of the candidates for that position. Partly, I think, because there's a, a lack of, of really high-quality left-backs available on the market at the moment. He's been investigating who he could take from another European club and, and has been told um, there's not a great candidate anymore. The best candidate's already gone to your city rivals. That's Benjamin Mendy, who's at Manchester City now. Um, and Danny Rose is in an interesting position. And, and has given a very interesting interview to the, the Sun today, actually a, an interview of, <laughs> that I, I've not seen a footballer uh, give while talking about the, the, the transfer activity of his own club before. Just, it, just wrap up what he said there, Duncan, just in case anyone hasn't read that. He's essentially said that he, he's basically told Daniel Levy, the, the, the man in charge of transfers at Tottenham, to get his finger out. Um, he's not happy that, that they haven't purchased anyone yet. He doesn't. He thinks their 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 first eleven is a is competitive with everyone else in the Premier League, but they've got no depth. Um, and he's also said that he sees his future, his his next contract in football, as the last opportunity for him to make good money, and that he plans to move back to the north of England um, before his career ends. So you don't really have to be too clever to join the dots and. And the messages trying to put. <clears throat> and the killer line, Duncan, for me in that interview was when he said, uh, "We need to buy players, and not the kind that you have to Google and say who the hell is that." And that's a massive uh, sort of blow, I think, to Daniel Levy's ego when one of his first-team players basically accuses him of uh, of buying players no one's ever heard of. Look, I think the situation with Danny Rose, and, and he's, he's more or less made it explicit. I want my next uh, big contract, and my next contract is, is fundamental to me. It's my last chance to get a big one, and I want to take the opportunity that's there available to me. He's he's obviously very well aware of Carl Walker's improved financial situation at Manchester City. You know, Manchester City made him for a short period of time the most expensive fullback in the world with a salary that goes alongside that pay on anything like that level even if Tottenham made 
Danny Rose tomorrow, the best paid player at White Hart Lane, he still wouldn't be close to Kyle Walker's salary. So what it looks like to me is Danny and his agent have made a calculation that this is a summer where everyone is chasing fullbacks, where Chelsea are very much still in the market for a high-level fullback under pressure from their manager, where Manchester United are in the market for a top-quality left-back with three weeks of the window to go, and where Manchester City are also looking for a fourth fullback to satisfy Pep Guardiola. And, and Manchester City have shown an interest in Danny Rose earlier in this window. Now, he's in, he's in a slightly complicated position because he's only coming back from a medial cru cruciate ligament surgery and, according to Tottenham, won't be ready to play till early September. So that's a tough time to force through a move because you're asking the club to buying you to take a risk on your medical. But it's also an opportunity when you have three of the top clubs in England all looking for fullbacks, all interested and very few available in the market. And that and and he's taking advantage of that now. Is this a change of approach for United? Because obviously most of the headlines have been around um, attacking players and specifically Gareth Bale recently, but the focus you think is now turned to um, a fullback. Why? Why is that the case? A fullback's been on Mourinho's list from the the moment it was drawn up, which was um, about March, April last year. So through last season, it's, it's, it's been an obvious position of weakness for Manchester United through the whole time that Mourinho's been at the club, but you just have to look at the players he used there last season, that no one held down the slot. He rotated four or five individuals into the role, depending on who the opponents were and depending on their form. Um, there's, there's an added element in that Mourinho, you saw in the European Super Cup, he started with three a three-back system with wing-backs, um, which is extremely unusual for him. He's hardly ever started a match in his entire managerial managerial career with three at the back. I understand that he plans to use it more often, not not as his basic formation, but to use it more often in the in the coming season to counter um, the increasing use of, of three back systems by by opposition teams. So that adds to the pressure on 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 getting a good full back in because then you're not just looking at someone who can play in a back four with a, another winger in front of them. You're looking at a guy who can play the entire touchline uh, when you set the team up that way, playing in a, in a three with wing-backs. Ian, uh, Levy's notoriously a, a tough negotiator. Um, how do you think he's going to react to this news? Well, one of two ways to, uh, will be how Daniel reacts, and that's um, either he'll sell him right out the door as quickly as he can because he wants rid of what he will see as a disruptive influence in his dressing room, or and this is more likely, um, he will make sure he stays at the club almost as part punishment for uh, stepping out of line. Um, the thing for Tottenham is um, they have lost Kyle Walker, um, who I think was probably their best right fullback. Obviously, Pochettino doesn't agree. And he and Pochettino had a, a row towards the end of last season, which saw Walker being dropped for the last three or four games of the season. At that moment, it was clear he became expendable and and buyable. So, um, and it's interesting that Chelsea were very interested in buying Kyle Walker as well, but Manchester City were way far more advanced in those negotiations and also offered more money. So, um, Walker went to Manchester City. 
Um, with regard to Rose, I agree with Duncan. There are very few. If in fact Rose is probably now top of the, <clears throat> excuse me, best fullbacks available. If indeed he does become available in European football, and uh, Manchester United, I think would have a very good chance of signing him. Um, <clears throat> I think there is interest from Chelsea as well, but if Marcos Alonso playing in the left wing back position and having had a very very good season under Antonio Conte last year. I doubt very much that Danny Rose would be tickle Chelsea as much as it does Manchester United. And I suppose, just as a little aside, we have to ask ourselves, whatever happened to the most expensive teenager in world football, that one Luke Shaw, who has an absolute torrid time since he moved to Manchester United. And with this move for Danny Rose, or indeed another left-back, it seems that Luke Shaw is very much not Mourinho's plans for next season. Indeed. Um, is it Slightly convenient that once uh, Mourinho gets, gets beaten by Real Madrid in the uh, the Super Cup final, um, he suddenly turns his focus on a fullback, and lo and behold, Danny Rose gives an interview to the Sun, uh, expressing <laughs> great unhappiness at his uh, current club. I would say that uh, it's a coincidence if you believe in that such things. Um, Personally, I think uh, the way that football works is much more devious and less subtle than that of the coincidence or indeed the, uh, the magician's rabbit of a hat-trick. Uh, so I would say that um, Danny Rose in uh, his interview this morning has is effectively um, uh, submitted a transfer request rather than given an interview to a newspaper. Um, and how, then what we know historically is that Daniel Levy does not respond well to this kind of external pressure, player power, if you want to call it that. Um, and in the past has indeed uh, been very, very tough to negotiate with. Uh, remember Gareth Bale's move to Madrid, although everyone knew it was going to happen. didn't actually happen until I think it was the last day of that transfer window three years ago. Uh, Luka Modric to Real Madrid was the same. Um, there's probably uh, Michael Carrick to Manchester United. We have other examples as well um, where basically he will wait, he will put pressure, this is Levy, will put pressure on the buying club to pay the premium price for that player. Or, so, uh, Daniel Rose will have irritated Daniel Levy, no doubt about that, and will also um, have made it more difficult to uh, negotiate his exit from Tottenham Hotspur. Because one thing that Spurs need to do is, is secure a replacement for him now, what Duncan and I have agreed upon already is there isn't anyone out there. So unless they're planning to bring a player you know, in from sort of reserve position, then I would say this one will play its way out right to the final day of the transfer window. Duncan, another big story this week has been the news that Kylian Mbappe is set to snub Real Madrid and Man City in order to sign up with Neymar and Edison Cavani to form a new superstar trio frontline at PSG. What's the latest you can tell us on that? Yeah, look, this, this story um, came to me initially from uh, Monaco sources. You told me, you know, I was asking where things stood with Mbappe, basically, because you had this ongoing situation where Real Madrid, Manchester City and PSG were all prepared to pay the €180 million Euros that Monaco were ready to sell the player for. Um, how it developed, where was he likely to go? And I was told he has decided to go to Paris Saint-Germain um, and the deal they expect it to go through next week. Not only will they take Mbappe, they're also going to take Fabinho from, from Monaco. 
um, for an, another 45 million euros. Um, checked this out at the, the Paris end and got the same information, which was that, yes, um, <laughs> they are pushing very hard for Mbappe and they expect to take the player in addition to Neymar um, at the record transfer fee of 222 million euros that they, they forced him out of Barcelona with last week. So um, an extraordinary bit of business from Paris Saint-Germain. Um, Extraordinary feat of accounting as well, Duncan, given financial fair play. Just to add to that, I think when when this rule came in and it was implemented and it did come down hard on Manchester City and PSG, there was a, a huge groundswell within people involved in football, not, not simply at clubs, but representing players um, with other people with significant investments in, in football as a business who said that this is a complete contradiction of European competition law. It allows the richest clubs a oligarch-like position in that they remain rich, they retain the advantage over everyone else, and new competitors aren't allowed into the market. And there were um, sort of groups set up to uh, launch a legal challenge against UEFA with the European Commission against these rules. Now, that remains that threat remains there uefa are well aware that if they push too hard on financial fair play they risk a uh, legal case with the european commission against people who have a lot of money invested in this a lot of money they're prepared to to push and make sure that um that open transfer deals at, at the at the market price are allowed to continue the other element that's important here is that Financial fair play can't do anything to Paris Saint-Germain this summer. They could spend a billion on transfers and it would make no difference to their entry into this season's Champions League um, and their ability to win the Champions League. The it only potentially impacts them at the end of this season when their accounts are analysed and, and when, it's, uh, when they, they try and demonstrate that they've re remained within the... A permitted loss, which is 30 million euros over three seasons, um, over that three season accounting period. So until then, they're free to do whatever they like. And, you know, I don't know what the strategy is. I'm not going to tell you that I know what Qatar's answer to financial fair play is. I'd love to find out. It's something I'll look into. I don't know at the moment. But remember, this is a club that's owned by a country and it's owned for political purposes. And they're trying to make a huge PR splash, which they've achieved by signing Neymar. Perhaps, perhaps, you know, just throwing this out as a theory, they want to have one really good year at going after the Champions League, buying these players. And then they'll look, at, they'll look after the problem and solve the problem as the scenario sits in a year's time. Maybe that's their thinking. And also, Duncan, you and I both are um, world wise enough to realise that uh, Qatar have invested incredible amounts of money in infrastructure and stadium building for the World Cup in 2022. Now, FIFA has endorsed that World Cup. There will be no taking the World Cup away from Qatar. So Qatar actually is one of the major power brokers in world football now. And therefore, in um, owning PSG and in spending this way, if you want to go after PSG, you're effectively going after Qatar. And Qatar has got a lot of influence and a lot of power. And also, of course, most importantly, a lot of money. And therefore, uh, I do not see this as being something which is pursued. And the their uh, interest in Mbappe 
effectively stands all of that up because if they sign Mbappe for £160 million and Neymar for 200 they'll have outstripped the spending of every European club uh, in this transfer window and will have spent more indeed in this transfer than any other club has ever done. So it is a historic moment in football with regards to uh, transfer fees being paid. Now, I think going back to the football side, away from politics, Mbappe's made a very clever choice here if he goes to PSG because he's looked at Real Madrid and he sees the BBC, he sees Benzema, Bale and Ronaldo and thinks, OK, where do I fit into that? And he would have watched very closely what happened in Skopje at the Super Cup this week when Mourinho uh, said publicly he would like to sign Bale, but if Bale started for Real Madrid, then he would think the game was over. Now, Josie was being clever. I think he was playing some mind games there. I think the manager... Chester United's interest in Bale was minimal at best. However, uh, firm to Mbappe that Bale will stay at Madrid. Therefore, he's got to force his way into an established front three, which has won La Liga and the Champions League uh, last season. And he thinks, you know what? I'm 19. I want to play the World Cup next year for France. My best bet is to go to PSG and play with Neymar and play with Cavani. Um, and whoever else uh, they decide to bring in, because let's face it, they could probably sign Pelly at this rate. Um, and the, uh, he will become a star there, and he remains in his home country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and you know, a lot of people have gone to Real Madrid, um, especially at a young age, and not done well. Um, and so I think it's a clever move of, uh, in terms of Mbappe's advisors to take him to PSG instead. That's a, a very fair analysis. When when we broke the story in the Daily Record of the of the sort of triple um, bid from Madrid, PSG, and Manchester City for Mbappe, that was the the main element of the calculation with Madrid from on Mbappe's part was: Do I get to play? What's my position in in this team? Where where is my role in the squad? How much playing time do I get? What's how how valuable? How 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 much sense does it make to me as an 18-year-old trying to establish myself as one of the, the top players in football to move to Real Madrid at this stage of the career? And Zinedine Zidane was not active in getting Mbappe to go there. That was the second concern was Pep Guardiola pushing very hard to get him to Manchester City had made a great impression on Mbappe, but... Zidane, reluctant, didn't seem anywhere near as keen as Manchester City were to sign him. Then you've got the Paris Saint-Germain element. Same country, same league. Um, in the, moving to his home city and the centrepiece of attack, which um, could, you know, you could argue will be the strongest attack in football next season. Cavani centre, Neymar, Neymar on, on one wing, Mbappe on another wing. Um, it's, you know, it's an attractive proposition. It's the sort of snub that Real Madrid won't be used to, Ian. How are they going to react? Very badly, I suspect, Henry. Um, Real Madrid are not a club which is used to people saying no. It's a big, big summer for La Liga when you think about it in this sense, because with Neymar choosing to leave Barcelona, probably the first player in their history to uh, at, the, at his age to choose to go to a lesser league and effectively a smaller club. Um, and with Mbappe, I know for sure that uh, Real Madrid worked for at least five weeks very, very hard on um, agreeing a deal with the player and his representatives, agreeing a deal with Monaco um, two weeks ago. Uh, they were, I, I'm told, 100% certain that they would sign the player 
uh, with uh, within sort of about a month of that time. That was two weeks ago. And so PSG have done a remarkable job to turn his head. Now, what also happens um, in these situations is that uh, the old chaos theory of when a butterfly flaps its wings somewhere in the southeast Pacific, then a rainstorm happens in Inveruri. And uh, that's what's going to happen uh, now because um, Real Madrid, uh, their president, Florentino Perez, uh, had uh, an unopposed re-election to be president um, of the club again. Uh, and he did so on the back of his usual promise, I will bring you the new Galactico. Now, that Galactico was Mbappe. Mbappe turns his back on Real. They are going to go straight out into the transfer uh, shopping market and go for their second target. And that target will be Aiden Hazard at Chelsea. Um, long, very much admired uh, from, a lot, from a long time by Madrid. Uh, I think it's safe to say that Hazard has always imagined himself uh, in the white kit of Real at some point in his career. Um, yeah, I think he's very happy at Chelsea. His young family are very settled in London. But when Real Madrid come knocking, then a player takes notice, unless his name's Kylian Mbappe. And uh, I think Hazard will uh, be the, the, the secondary target now. I think that will have a very, very uh, interesting effect on um Chelsea's transfer window, as we know, uh, they've not recruited uh, in, a, in a anywhere near as big a way as their rivals in England or indeed abroad. And their manager, Antonio Conte, is incredibly uh, disappointed, to say the least, with the way the club has gone about its transfer policy in this window. So uh, you put that, that together with interest in Hazard from Madrid. And I think we're looking at us a little bit of a, the old cartoon type, about where the, uh, someone likes the... Uh, the dynamite from afar, and they wait for the, uh, the explosion to come. Okay, so just before we get on to Chelsea, what does all this mean for Gareth Bale? I don't agree. I think Bale, um, and I, I think Duncan agrees with this, has been subtly marketed by George Mendes, who does most of Real Madrid's buying and selling, and the agent, uh, to potential suitors in case, just in case they got a bite. Um, and the bite that would satisfy Madrid would be to sell him for the same price they paid, uh, around £89 million. Um, but the stick in all this is actually Gareth Bale himself. He is a player who loves it in Madrid, does not see himself playing uh, at another club next season, wants to remain there. However, you bring Hazard into the equation and, you, and, and you know Bale's record at Madrid in terms of trophies is brilliant, but then so is the, the reserve goalkeeper um, as well. You know, he's got the same medals as Bale. Uh, Bale's played a few more games, clearly, and has had more of an influence, but the, the sort of baseline is Madrid don't see Bale as indisposable. Bale sees himself as staying at Madrid, so you've got the rock in a hard place there. You bring someone like Hazard, who scores 10, 12, 14 goals a season, uh, leading assists in the Premier League, so he generally speaking, averages between 10 and 12, maybe 14 assists a season as well. Um, that's serious competition for Bale, who has been had his injury problems uh, at Real, um, who hasn't been as consistent as a lot of uh, people would have imagined him to be. So I think there's, a, there's questions to be asked. So you've got to say at that point, would if Hazard tells Chelsea, I desperate to want, want to go to Madrid, would they think about Bale as a replacement? I think, look, look, Bale has been made available for sale. He's been made available for sale because Madrid were trying to create room in the squad for Mbappe. Bale has absolutely resisted that from you know the first minute on. 
I've, I've, you know, I stood in uh, in the mix zone in Cardiff after the Champions League final and listened to Gareth Bale being questioned about his future, and he he just he wasn't happy about the questions. He straight batted them all. He tried to be polite, but it was you know, I'm not interested in leaving this club, and he stuck to that position all the way through. Um, I thought what Mourinho said ahead of the European Super Cup final um, was fascinating in that he put pressure on Zidane to play him in the game. He put pressure on Madrid over uh, to make a, a comment about whether the player was for, for sale or not. He put pressure on Gareth Bale to face another mix zone in which questions would be asked about his future. In fact, he, I think BT Sport had him on TV af after the game get, being quizzed on, 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 in qu quite some detail about where he was going to be this season. And he also put pressure on Manchester United. If you look at the way his words were expressed, although they were said in Spanish, not English, it was, if I, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, if I find that Gareth Bale is available for sale, I will be first in the line of coaches to fight for his signature. He didn't say Manchester United will be first in line to fight for his signature. He said, I will be first in line to fight for his signature. And again, pressuring the club, to see whether they are prepared to finance a deal of that scale, which the indication has been for the whole of this summer that they don't have enough money or that or rather they're not prepared to put as, as much money as is required to bring a player like Bale in on top of the signings they've already made for other positions. I keep going back, um, Henry and Duncan, to my own memories of Manchester United through the years. I'm talking the last two decades here when it comes to the proposed signing of Gareth Bale. I look at this team right now and I don't see a player that's going to get me off my seat. I think Pogba is a very functional midfielder who has a great streak of talent in him to do things that we don't expect from someone maybe of his physical stature or youth. I think Romelu Lukaku is a, a bully and a nuisance to opposing defenders. He's got a, a good first touch and his goal scoring record in terms of the Premier League is there for all to see. But I don't see a David Beckham, a Ryan Giggs, a Paul Scholes, a Roy Keane, an Andy Cole. I don't see a player in that Man United team last season or indeed for the last three seasons who I would say is a genuine superstar or indeed Cristiano Ronaldo himself up until 2009. So if Jose Mourinho who, remember, in the wake of the Europa League final win last season, talked about the triumph for the pragmatist over the poet, meaning you know that the romance in football was something which he didn't care for too much. And not only that, he saw pragmatism as a way to win football matches. If Jose Mourinho is going to pay some kind of homage to the great United teams of the past, Gareth Bale is your man to bring in. He's the guy who will get everyone. As soon as he gets the ball and starts to run at defenders, he's your man to do that. But does Mourinho really think uh, that his pragmatic approach needs to be improved by one romantic in his team? I think, I think what, what's been interesting to me, in, uh, particularly in the last few months, is that Mourinho's given, has talked on several occasions about the importance of superstar players the importance of players who have, I think the phrase he uses is a relation with the football that is above and beyond um, the average player. And he cites guys like Cristiano Ronaldo, Neymar. He mentions Bale when he talks about 
this kind of thing. He, talk, he talks, he mentions Paul Pogba in, in his list of players that um, he classes in that category. And I think it's kind of an evolution in Mourinho as a manager. And, and Ian knows this very well, having you know, covered, as, as we both did, Jose from the, the moment he arrived at Chelsea and through, through his many years at the club. That wasn't Jose Mourinho as a manager when he first came to England. The pragmatism, the, the team ethic, the tactical structure was the thing that, that preceded everything else. And he didn't go about buying that type, type of player. In fact, when he went to Real Madrid, I, I know that he had people advising him saying, you need to spend more money. Don't be, don't be so cautious about buying a player for a big transfer fee because he, he actively resisted doing that. And it's only at Manchester United where he's gone and said, Paul Pogba is the top player in his position, available on the market, and told the club to go and sign him and done that. But now there is a difference there in that he's looking to do that kind of transfer again. He seems to have got over that reluctance of being associated with a super high transfer fee of putting so much money into a star. Perhaps it's because he, he backs himself to, to handle these guys and integrate them into the team, having worked with Cristiano Ronaldo so successfully at Real Madrid and, and taking the, the Spanish title off Barcelona doing that. But, but there's a change there. And uh, Anton Griezmann, who's, who's maybe not in that category yet, but heading towards that category, he tried to get Neymar. He was involved in, in, in trying to persuade Neymar to come to Manchester United. He's tried to get Gareth Bale. So they are, that is in his thinking. And, and he obviously sees that Manchester United need a little bit more of that if they are to become what, they, what he's expected to make them again, which is contenders for the Champions League. And when he talks about things, he, he always phrases it in the, with a contrast between Premier League and Champions League. He says, Premier League, we've got a team that can compete for the title. I'm not saying we will win the title, but we're good enough to compete for it. When he talks about Champions League, he says, we're not there yet. We're not, we're not close to being there yet, and starts mentioning those type of players. Well, they have three weeks left of the window to resolve at least some other issues. But we did mention Chelsea. They've got Antonio Conte has signed a new contract. They've just broken their transfer record for a new striker. Um, they're reigning champions going into the new campaign and back in the Champions League. Everything must be peachy and creamy at Stamford Bridge. Is that so, Ian? I don't think so, uh, Henry. I think that would be the opposite, actually. <laughs> and it was very interesting um, for anyone who saw uh, the launch of Premier League um, yesterday on Sky um, Antonio Conte was the first manager to be interviewed as part of a, a sort of day-long um, uh, kind of preview for the for the following season, and he sat there with a face like thunder, basically. And uh, that's because, and then when he was actually asked direct questions about the, the club's spending this summer, he he, he replied by saying, um, "Everyone else has strengthened. All of our rivals, Manchester City, Manchester United, uh, have all, and um, Arsenal have all strengthened." Um, and you need to strengthen if you want to compete. So when asked directly about, well, does that mean that you have to strengthen more or that you've got what you want? He said, my club knows my priority. Now, his priority is to be signing players that he wanted them to sign. But in fact, he's had the opposite um, in terms of outcome because in uh, their strategy meetings 
with the people who control transfers at the club in both March, April, uh, and then again in May. And he listed the players and positions that he needed and wanted to strengthen. And so far, out of, I think, my, my estimate is a list of around 10 players, so far he's been delivered zero of those 10 players that he requested. So he requested a new centre-back uh, who could play in a back three. Um, he listed Bonucci, Alexandro, both at Juventus. Bonucci obviously went to uh, AC Milan. Uh, Virgil van Dijk, Kyle Walker, uh, Antonio Candreva as a right-sided player. Um, and instead he got Anthony Rudiger who I think he basically had never requested nor indeed had seen play very much. And then again, um, an attacking player to replace Diego Costa, he listed Lukaku, Diabala uh, and Aguero. Instead, he got Alvaro Morata when Manchester United no longer wanted him because he got Romelu Lukaku. And it was no surprise to me. And I think it was a very big writing on the uh, wall for Chelsea and the people who decide transfers there that he started a community shield last Sunday with 11 players who had played for him last season, including Batshuayi, um, who was less than a cameo uh, at the point of the attack, and his trusted Luis uh, Aspilicueta and Cahill in the back three, uh, with obviously um, the two wing backs uh, in Victor Moses and Marcus Alonso. Again, players who played last season. So he dumped both his, his new players, £100 million worth on the bench. Then, of course, we have the issue of Thibaut Courtois' penalty. Uh, now, I checked. And Antonio Conte, to my knowledge, has never asked a goalkeeper to take a penalty in his entire career. So why would that happen on a showpiece game at Wembley, uh, curtain raiser to the season, if it wasn't a message to the board to say, this is what you've done to me? I need to ask my goalkeeper to take the second penalty. Now, look, it doesn't matter whether we agree with that or not and whether we think he's being a bit dramatic, etc., etc. The fact of the matter is, the manager of Chelsea is not happy with the business that's been done by the club. They also sold Nemanja Matic out to Manchester United, a move that one pundit said uh, had given United the last piece of the jigsaw in their title bid. And we're talking about the title bid to overturn Chelsea's defence here. Um, and his, uh, and that is Conte's reply to that was, we need another midfielder. So you've sold one of the best midfielders in the Premier League to one of your biggest rivals just to try and buy another one in who may not be available. And that's not you know, taking back Ayoko, who didn't even make the bench, of course, last Sunday, out of the equation. They paid um, £40 million from, from Monaco. So all is not happy um, there at Chelsea right now. Um, and Duncan and I... Uh, both uh, have our opinions about Conti's own contract situation. I think Duncan would uh, happily come in on that, I think. Yeah, look, at the the, the contract situation has, has been a catastrophe for Chelsea, I think is, is, a, is a good way to describe it. They were briefing long ago last season as they were rolling towards the title that, that Conti would be given a new deal to reward them for his success and they would be um, extended by several years. I think they, they, they said it was going to be a new four-year contract was their, their briefing. It didn't happen during the season. It didn't happen at the end of the season when they said it would happen. It didn't happen for most of the summer. And when they did eventually announce a new contract, the new contract was for exactly the same length of time as the old contract, but including a pay rise to Conte. Um, and a very, very clear sticking plaster over 
a situation in where Conte, as, as Ian has explained, has been pushing the club to radically improve the squad. And the phrase that, that, that's, that is always passed on to me when I discuss this with people close to Conte is that he wants both quality and quantity. You can question whether he's got quality so far. He's certainly not got quantity. Um, there are other issues there, including um, a, a, a debate, a fight over over the, the role of the academy at Chelsea, with um, with Chelsea telling, asking Conte when he came to the club, as they ask every manager to promote academy players, and asking that he be more involved with the running of the academy, and Conte replying. I'm quite happy to take, to look after the academy, but if I if I have to look after the academy, you let me appoint the head of the academy so it's run in the way that I want it to be run. And the club saying no, so then entering a standoff in which Conte stepped away from the academy and barely used used team players, as to be fair, every other manager at Chelsea has always done because they're not good enough to make the first team. Also, uh, an ongoing dispute with the club over access to the people who make decisions at the club. So Conte wants a direct line to Roman Abramovich. He wants to be able to speak to him when he's unhappy and he wants to be able to discuss things like signings with him directly. But he doesn't have access to him on a regular basis. He doesn't even have access to Marina Granovskaya on a regular basis, who's supposed to be um, Abramovich's uh, person in situ at the training ground controlling the club day to day. So. All of these are issues for Antonio Conte. The only one that has been resolved by signing a new contract is he's got a pay rise. And he now feels that he's paid on the level he should be paid as a manager who's won the Premier League. But in terms of what the squad is, has got to be to A, retain Premier League title when they've got to play Champions League football as well, and it's far harder in terms of physical demands, and B, compete for the, the Champions League he does not feel they're anywhere near where he wants them to be. And that's why you get these grumpy television interviews. And, and essentially, every time he speaks, now he's been allowed to speak publicly, he comments about the, the weakness of the squad and the, the, the great importance of improving it as soon as possible. So, Ian, what's the problem? What's the club side of this story? But the club side is basically that... Um, Chelsea has been infamous for being a, a you know a, a nest of vipers with regards to the politics that goes on in the football department there, and hence why we've seen um, more managers at Chelsea than years that Roman Abramovich has been the owner. <clears throat> now, with regards to Conte, he came uh, off the back of the Italian national job um, and three relatively successful years at Juventus, but he came in as an unknown quantity in terms of Premier League experience, obviously. Chelsea took a punt, as you take a punt on any manager, you're not, there's no guarantee that it's going to work out. Look at Pep's season at Manchester City last year. And um, so Conte was, a, let's just say, um, he was more uh, comfortable to accept the workings of the club as it was when he came in, because out of courtesy, out of the fact that he was a new boy, he should just try and make it work. Now, he did make it work, and they won the Premier League very convincingly. Um, but of course, they had no European football last year. Now, Conte knows that this season, the um, demands of the Champions League uh, and then obviously to win, to retain the Premier League title are going to be much, much greater. And that's why he has asked for both quantity and quality, as Duncan has stated. And so far, they've sold much, many more players out. And, and it's interesting as well, when Duncan was talking about academy players, but players like Nathaniel Chalaba, Loftus-Cheek, uh, uh, Dominic Solanke um, have all 
who've all made first wave pensions have all now either gone out on loan again or actually been sold. So this idea that Chelsea's academy produces players that can come into Chelsea first team continues to be uh, a non sequitur. So um, from the club's point of view, the people who run the transfers, namely Marina Gravskaya, Michael Emanuel, the sport director, Roman Brown, which obviously has the final say where he, where he feels he needs to, um, they believe that the success the club has, has achieved uh, and let's face it, they've won that now every trophy there is to be won apart from the Club World Cup uh, under Roman Abramovich. They believe if it ain't broken, why fix it? But well, unfortunately... Look at the signings. The, the signings are a goalkeeper, albeit a backup, a centre-back, a centre-midfielder and a centre-forward. If you look at it at, at that level, then they've, they've bought an entire new spine to the team. Yeah, but will that spine play? I mean, Rüdiger is young and unexposed at Premier League level. Um, Bakayoko, again, the back of a successful season with Monaco. Um, and Morata, who was playing second fiddle to the BBC at Real Madrid. Although we should state that Morata's uh, goals for games, uh, for games, minutes played in games, was third in the league last season to Messi and Suarez. Uh, so we shouldn't discount Morata in that, in that sense. But Clearly, with Diego Costa exiled, um, the need to have a new centre-forward uh, was paramount. But what Conte wanted was another Diego Costa. He wanted a player who could bully um, op- opponents, a player who would be a nuisance, who would create space for others, uh, and also score goals, both beautiful and dirty. Well, um, he's, al- he's already got a Diego Costa. Yeah, clearly that relationship is beyond repair. So instead he got Morata, who's, who's an artisan striker. Um, he's got the stature, but he doesn't put himself around. Uh, he doesn't bully defenders, but he will score you goals if you give him the ball in the right places. So it's a bit of, a, again, it's a £64 million pound punt in terms of Morata. Um, his, his argument to his employers was this. I did it your way and I succeeded. I'm the one who won the championship. I'm the man. Uh, give me control. And they've said no. And hence you have the standoff. Now, this is not a new problem at Chelsea. Uh, the infamous uh, Josie Mourinho um, press conference uh, uh, when he said um, about bringing players in January, he came out to buying eggs at Waitrose and buying eggs from the bargain store. And how you can only be a great omelette if you buy eggs from Waitrose. Now, <laughs> he was sacked about you know, three weeks later. So, so this is not new. Um, you know, strong-minded, strong-willed people Who's let's face it, their reputation, their job is the one on the line, dependent on results in the field, not the people on the board, not the people in the background. They want to at least be able to say, I bought that player, and if he fails, it's my fault. And of course, you know, we've had this with Mourinho Shevchenko, with uh, Ancelotti and Torres. Um, you know, all players bought by Roman Abramovich, all players who failed to make the impact they should have done. And now Conte does not want to risk his reputation, his job, by trying to make, uh, you know, players that he hasn't chosen into Chelsea superstars. What's Conte like as a bloke? I mean, what motivates this guy? Success and money. Um, Listen, Conte, if you remember him as a player, was one of the most competitive, marauding, volatile right wingers I've ever seen play. I loved watching him play for Juventus. And he played in a wonderful Juventus team, a very creative team. But Conte was the steel in that team. 
and he was the one who got everyone else going and made sure that if you know bottoms need to be kicked, then he was the one who kicked them. And uh, that's what he's like as a manager as well. It, I've been in his company. He's sort of he's quite. Is he very? He's a very intense person. He, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. He um, he can have uh, a light-hearted way about him um, if if the mood is right. Um, he will be jokey and convivial, but football is what he lives and breathes. Uh, you could compare him to a, a sort of young Wenger, if you like, um, but with good eyesight. Um, so he's um, yeah, he's he's very much driven by his job, by his ambition, and I don't think I don't think it's within the realms of uh, of impossibility that he, if things don't go his way and results go badly, he would walk rather than be sacked, because I think he would be the kind of person who would like to come out and say, well, look, you know, it worked the first year, and then I tried to tell them this is how it should be done the second year. They didn't listen to me, they didn't deliver, and I felt, therefore, I couldn't work under the circumstances. So I think we've all got to keep an eye out on Chelsea this season, because I think, you know, there's definitely um, there's tension there, and where there's tension, there's a, there's a possible explosion. Antonio, Antonio Conte is utterly focused on winning. He's he, he wants to win every single match, which is why what he did in the Community Shield and not and not starting those the the big money new signings and playing a striker at Batshuayi centre forward, we'd entrusted with I think 240 minutes of Premier League football in total last season, is so telling. You know, that's not because he was trying to make a point to the board. It's because he he felt they were the best options he had at that moment to win a match he wanted to win to get another trophy. And that tells you what he, what he thinks to the state of the squad, that he's turning to those players and not using his new signings. Um, he is a huge, huge focus for him is to prove himself a Champions League winning manager. He walked out on Juventus in a dispute over transfers because he didn't feel they were providing him with a squad good enough to win the Champions League. And you're, you're seeing a repeat of that situation without, as yet, the walkout. In terms of Chelsea, I think you've got to, there's one important factor in that Chelsea, compared to Manchester United and Manchester City, their transfer market business in terms of making a profit on sales and in selling a lot of players is important to them in terms of meeting financial fair play and meeting Premier League um, spending rules. So they do have to be careful in their sales and purchases. And they have devised a very clever system of buying up a lot of young talent from across Europe, farming them out to various clubs uh, domestically and in Europe, and then selling them on at profits without most of them ever making it into the first team. So that you can understand why the, the executive Chelsea are <coughs> proud of that. And think they know to, back that up, Duncan, to, to, back, to back that up, Chelsea's net spend in the last three years of transfer windows has averaged under £30 million. Now, for a club of Chelsea's size, that's quite a remarkable business. Um, and they should be applauded for that, um, albeit the way they go about it might not be the most mainstream. Um, but at the same time, um, you, from Conte's point of view, you can understand that he's sitting there with his, you know, sitting with his thumbs all summer, wondering why the current English champions, why a club that's competing for the Champions League next season, why a club with, I think, the fifth highest wage bill already in European football and with all the resources it has, is not trying and not going out 
to get the players he has requested because it's not like they can't afford the transfer fees and it's not like they can't afford the wages. So Conte's thinking to himself, well, what's going on? Is this about me? Is it about someone else? Or am I being undermined here? Yeah, look, I, I, I was looking at the numbers this morning and Chelsea's gross spend, okay, it's not net spend, but gross spend in transfers this summer is actually high, the highest they've spent for 10 years. Yeah. Which is interesting, but but and let's get back to the key point here. The executive of the club think they're good at transfers. They have instigated a scheme where they make money out of transfers. We know that Chelsea, when they sack managers, are happy to brief the press and say, our system of sacking managers is the reason why we are successful. So Chelsea have internally within the executive, they're at least prepared to portray a picture of, we keep our managers on our toes, we operate the squad, and it's us that determines the success um, by bringing a coach in. It does a job for us, but fundamentally, it's our organisation which is re responsible for our success. And we know, as, as journalists have covered Chelsea Football Club, that every time that club gets into issues with, his man with their manager, it is about this conflict of who knows best about the running of the football department. So this isn't, you know, it's not a popular position with Chelsea fans at the moment, but it's a fact that Chelsea have twice sacked the most successful manager in their club's history um, over direct disputes over recruitment and organisation of the football team. So both times, Jose Mourinho lost his job. It was because he had won a title, had been successful, wanted to make changes to the squad to... Uh, try and win the Champions League, and the club said, no, you can't have what we want, what you want. We are going to give you these players because we think this is their better solutions. And, and, and also, Duncan, on that note, um, for anyone who doubts that, should uh, simply uh, get on yourself on YouTube and watch Roberto Di Matteo walk up the, to the steps at the um, Allianz Arena in 2012, having just guided the club to its first ever Champions League win. And Roman Abramovich puts his arm around him and you can hear on the mic Dimitri say, look what I did, as in I won the European Cup. And he was sacked three months later because Abramovich actually was thinking, you dreadful, naughty little schoolboy, this is what I did, not you, son. <laughs> OK, that seems like a good point to call us to halt. My thanks to Ian and to Duncan, of course, as always. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Transfer Window podcast. Make sure you go to iTunes and subscribe, tell your pals, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm -hmm.